When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Shall we dare to actually do our music without our mates messing it up with drums and guitars and crap? Hello, and welcome to the third season of Live Through That, the podcast where I talk to influential musicians from the 80s, 90s, and beyond. I'm Mike Hipple, and on this podcast, we'll dig a little deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of the artists I feature in my books, Live Through That and 80s Redux, as well as artists whom I love and respect. On today's show, we feature Andy McCluskey from OMD. Alongside artists like Gary Newman, OMD were pioneers in electronic music, throwing away their guitars and launching a new type of music that exploded into the mainstream in the 1980s. I remember back in 1985 when Z89, the Syracuse University radio station I listened to, started playing songs from their album Crush. They played some of the deeper cuts on that album, Native Daughters of the Golden West, Block, 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 as well as the first single, So In Love, and I immediately fell in love and ran out to buy the album. It was a gateway drug to their earlier catalog. Songs like Electricity and Enola Gay made their way onto mixtapes I would make for myself and friends. To this day, I consider Crush one of the top five albums of the 1980s, definitely worth revisiting. And with that, let's hear Andy tell the story about a happy accident that, if it hadn't happened, that record and all the rest likely wouldn't have made it to my ears. All bands, all musicians, all artists who have been fortunate enough to have some success in their lives will always have a moment in time when something changed for them that made that success likelier to happen or it was a ladder for them to climb in their career or a moment where a door opened and we had a moment like that uh, in Manchester at the end of 1978 um, but Paul Humphreys and I weren't even there at the time, which is quite interesting. We had we had been writing songs together since we were uh, teenagers. Uh, I was 16, Paul was 15. I would go around to his house um, because his mother was out working on a Saturday, so we had a place to make noise and not annoy anybody in the family. My house was always busy. And um, he, we had this symbiotic relationship. I would go with my paper round money to, to Liverpool on Saturday morning to buy albums usually german imports paul had made himself a stereo where i had a pretty crappy little mono record player that was my mum's from the 60s so i would go around to paul's we'd listen to these german things and then because he was into electronics we had this mad idea of trying to sort of make music that was like our heroes from dusseldorf like Kraftwerk and noi uh, with a bit of bowie Eno, roxy music and velvet underground thrown in and we had we had a whale of a time making weird noises, and then we finally got some keyboards that we actually played tunes because instead of Paul just making literally noise machines that just made the weirdest noises, and I had my trusty upside down left-handed bass guitar because it was the cheapest one in the second-hand shop, the only one I could afford with my birthday money on my 16th birthday, and um, 
we started writing music and, and most of our friends at the time, this was 1975, 1976, 77. You got to remember, everybody was into you know the Eagles and Genesis and Pink Floyd, and they were listening to what what we called music, and they weren't calling it music. So we started, you know, writing our own songs. But then we joined a, a band of Paul's friends, and and we modified what we were writing to to fit a kind of prog rock type lineup. And eventually, in 1978, we'd been going to this club in uh, Liverpool called Eric's, and they had uh, they had a kind of open door policy on Thursday night, where local bands could get up, and we heard "Warm Leatherette" by the Normal, played by the DJ. Uh, I went up to the DJ Norman Killen, and I went, "What the hell is that?" And he's like. It's uh, English on mute records, warm leather at normal. I went back to Paul and said, somebody's been into, into the things that we're into and they've made a record. Shall we dare to actually do our music without our mates messing it up with drums and guitars and crap? Just the two of us and, and we'll borrow your school friend's tape recorder to be the rest of the band. And let's just dare to do one gig. So that's what we did. September the 12th, 1978, we dared to play at Eric's Club on a Thursday night. We called ourselves Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark because we wanted people to know that, well, quite frankly, the music was horribly pretentious, so we needed a pretentious name. Um, and it didn't matter because it was only going to be one concert. Um, there was about 30 people there. Um, this also was the same month, by the way, that Two other bands played their first ever concerts at Eric's. Echo and the Bunnyman and Teardrop Explodes also played on the Thursday nights at Eric's. It was it was a hotbed. It was that was the place where all the Liverpool bands of our generation came from. Frankie goes to Hollywood, Flock of Seagulls, Teardrop Explodes, um, Dead or Alive. Everybody was in Eric's. All which made it more intimidating because you know you know they're all going. Yeah, well, they're all right, but they're shit compared to us. You know, so that was <laughs> these people would go on to be famous in their own right. The guys from the club actually said, hey, we really liked what you did. Uh, you supported somebody from Manchester. We have a reciprocal arrangement with a new club in Manchester called The Factory. Would you like to go and play there if we can get you a gig? So we said, yes. Three weeks later, we went to The Factory and we supported Cabaret Voltaire. And we met a guy called Tony Wilson, who we knew from the TV because he was, he was a journalist on the local evening news programme on Granada TV in the northwest of England. So we were like, oh, my God, it's Tony Wilson from the telly. So we met him, talked to him. Um, and I think we, he used to have new music on the TV show in the evening. So we thought we'd be cheeky. Well, we've met him. Maybe we could get on the TV show. We'll send him a cassette. So we did. And we heard nothing back from him. Now, this next part of the story is the pivotal moment. And we had heard this story and we thought it was a rumour. We thought it was just some urban myth. But Tony Wilson is in the car and he picks up his wife, Lindsay Reed, who gets into the passenger seat and she says, hello, love, um, what's this bag of cassettes in the footwell? And he went, oh, I'm taking them to the tip. It's just cassettes of bands who've tried to get on the TV show or get on the new label. Um, it's all shit. I'm just going to dump it. And she goes, oh, and she puts her hand into the bag of reject cassettes and she pulls one out. She goes, 
Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. That's a weird name. And he says to her, yeah, yeah they, they played the club the other week. A couple of hairy scousers were playing electric. Not my cup of tea at all. Not, not authentically punk, love. Um, so she, But she puts it into the cassette player in the car. And about one minute in, she goes, that's a hit. It was our song, Electricity. And he went, no, 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 seriously, seriously. You haven't seen them. They've got long hair. They're a pair of hippies doing electronic music. It's not authentic. It's not real. No. And she went, you should sign them. That's a hit. Yeah, I was married to Tony Wilton at the time. And he worked for Granada TV. And he had a music show called So It Goes. And um, because of that, he got sent just loads of cassette tapes of wannabe musicians. Here's Lindsay Reed with how she recalls that moment. Anyway, one day we were driving along in, in, in his car and I was in the passenger seat and I looked on the back seat and there was just a, a bag that was absolutely full to the brim with cassette tapes. And we were listening to the radio and I said, or something, and I said to him, do you ever play these tapes? And he said, uh, not really. <laughs> so I said, well, let's, let's have a listen while we're driving along. So I, I put a couple in and, you know, tech took them out immediately because they were no good. And then I put the track Electricity in, and um, which was a demo. And um, I said to Tony, this is good, this. And he looked a bit nonplussed. And uh, anyway, he said, well, I said, look, I'm going to play it again. So I played it again. And uh, I said, honestly, I, I think this, this band, they've got something. I think they could be a hit. And so Tony said, anyway, I distinctly remember we're driving along and we'd listen to this track again and I'm raving about it. You, you know, you really, I think this is a hit. And so I distinctly remember he put his hand on my leg in a very patronizing way and said, well, we'll do it for you, darling. We'll release it. <laughs> so they recorded the electricity for factory records and it was one of the early ones it was fat five the next time we meet tony wilson he's completely changed his mind he goes you guys are the future of pop music little did we know that he'd been slagging us off two weeks earlier he goes yeah and we were like right we're not pop we're fucking experimental do not call us pop <laughs> but if you want to make a record we'll do that um and the idea was that Factory Records was going to be a, a launch pad for local Northwest artists. And they said, they said, you should be on top of the pops. This is pop. And we're like, listen, it's not pop. But, you know, if you're going to make a record, yeah, we'll do it. And they said, and, and this will help you get there. This will be your demo to get you onto a major label who can get you onto the radio and onto TV. We didn't believe this was going to happen, but we wanted to make a record. So... That's exactly what happened. We recorded the record. Uh, we re-recorded it with Martin Zero, the famous Martin Hannes, who did Joy Division and so many of the other factory records. His version of Electricity didn't work out. He made it too slushy and too reverby. So the actual version that was went out was our four-track demo from our mate's garage, the guy who owned the tape recorder. And 5,000 were made. They all sold out because John Peel played it every night on his late night show on Radio One. Um, and we we got a call from a lady who 
um, was starting a new record company as part of Dindis, uh, part of Virgin called Dindisk. And she just happened to have been a lawyer who Richard Branson said, do you know anything about publishing? Um, I want you to run my publishing company. So she took over the publishing company and she signed a guy called Gordon Sumner before he was Sting and in the police. So made Branson a fortune. And Branson said, what do you want as a, as a bonus? And she said, give me a record company. So he did. And she signed us to a record company, Dindisk, and our first three albums were on Dindis Records and uh, sold quite a lot. In fact, the person who tipped me off about them was Tony Wilson, who you must be from, from you must have heard of Tony Wilson, who sadly passed away now. Um, he had a, uh, and he started the factory, famous nightclub, but this was earlier on. He was just a broadcaster in these days and he started Factory Records, the label, which was a very avant-garde, a really quirky, interesting label. And he put out the first version of Electricity on that label. And he gave them to me. He said, look, this, the, you know, the, these guys are commercial. They should be on a commercial label, um, not on my label. Um, we'll hold them back or be, I can't remember exactly what he said, but um, that was typical of Tony, you know, very ger- generous spirit. Carol Wilson, no relation to Factory's Tony Wilson, ran Dindisk Records and signed OMD as well as Martha and the Muffins as the first acts on the label. To me, it was so obvious, you know, I had this tape full of um, amazing songs. And, and Andy was, had such charisma as a performer, you know, he and a great voice. So, and, um, you know, Paul had a lot of musical talent and technical talent to bring to the equation. So it looked like a really uh, good prospect to me. We had no idea. I mean, this, this is the thing that what, what we didn't realise was that quite unconsciously and intuitively, we, I think, had taken our kind of teen aspiration to do something different inspired by German music and Brian Eno and things like that. But unconsciously, we were informed by the kind of glam rock pop that we'd been listening to on top of the pop just a few years earlier, like Slade and The Sweet. And so I think we were taking the Kraftwerk idea but unconsciously moulding it into three-and-a-half-minute electric pop songs. We didn't realise we were doing it. If you listen to Electricity now, you go, well, you know, yeah, of course. It's a great tune. It's a great lyric. It's a great, you know. But because we were using slightly different sounds to rock music, we just thought we were experimental. That's why we told Tony Wilson, you know, don't call us pop, we're experimental. But... Um, when it was released, suddenly everybody seemed to like it. Because the strange thing is that so many people know that song now that everybody assumes it was a hit. It was never actually a hit anywhere in the world, but it's just become a well-known song because we've stuck around for 44 years. I would be remiss if I didn't ask Andy about OMD's biggest hit in the States, If You Leave, from the 1986 film Pretty in Pink. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, interestingly, a lot of our British and European fans consider that to be a real sellout because it wasn't breaking any new ground stylistically or musically. Um, but it was... It was it, it was our it was our craftsman period. We knew what to do in the studio by that stage. And... and 
I don't know if you know the full story of that song, but um, we were invited to go down to Paramount Pictures to the set where they were filming. And obviously, you know, we knew John Hughes's movies and, and he, was, he was a real Anglophile with his musical tastes. And in hindsight, I look back actually, and I think that most of his movies were about outsider kids. And so you could imagine that those kids, they weren't listening to American music. They were listening to English imports. So that's why a lot of, so many of his movies have English music in the soundtracks, not American. Um, but yeah, obviously we, we, we'd seen the success of Simple Minds with Don't You Forget About Me and Breakfast Club. And so when he said, will you write us a song? We were like, hell yes. Uh, we went down there, we met Molly, we met John Cryer, and uh, we met John Hughes, and they were great. And he said, right, this is where I want the song. This is the script. Here's, here's the script. Want a song for the big ending. And you know, so we went back to Liverpool. We wrote a song. And just before we were about to start a tour with um, Thompson Twins, we came back to Los Angeles armed with our two-inch tape, ready to mix the song that we'd written called Goddess of Love. Uh, we get to LA and John says, listen, I like the song, but we test screened the movie and the teenage girls don't like the end. So we've reshot the end now. And the original ending, Molly Ringwald's character, Andy, ends up in a relationship with Ducky, her friend, not with the good looking Andrew actor. And all the girls are like, no, 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 he's her gay friend. He's her quirky friend. No, no, they can't be in love. She's got to go with the good looking. So they completely reshot the end of the movie. And John went, can you write me another song? And we were like, you're kidding me. I was like, we've just arrived. We're jet lagged. We've got no equipment because it's still flying in. So we said, yeah, okay, we'll try. <laughs> and we got booked into a place called Larrabee Studios. We hired in a Pro Tools. No, we, we hired in a... Um, Sorry, a Fairlight CMI, which was the the, the one of the early computers that uh, well, it was the first the first music computer actually eight channels, one and a half bit sampling, shockingly awful lo-fi thing, but that's what we wrote on. And um, for the first time in our lives, Paul and I sat around a piano and he bashed out some chords, and I tried to come up with a vocal melody like like some Tin Pan Alley songwriters. And by about three in the morning, we had something that we felt was working. We were with Tom Lord Algie, our engineer, because he'd come in to mix. And um, so we just we, we run run off the sort of demo onto a cassette, put it on, gave gave it to an overnight courier on a motorcycle, and, and went to sleep. Um, and then the next, you know, a few hours later, when we were woken up by our manager saying, yeah, John loves it. Can you go and finish it today? And we're like, fuck's sake, we're so tired. <laughs> so we went in and overdubbed it and finished it off. And um, then we started the tour. A couple of weeks later, we came back and did a couple more overdubs in, um, what's his name, studio, wrote, take my breath away. Giorgio Moroda. Uh, we did some hi-hat overdubs to give it some feel. So our, our drummer, Malcolm, actually played real hi-hat on it to just give it a bit of movement and did a final mix. And we had assumed that the psychedelic first Pretty in Pink would be the first re-release lead single because that's the title track of the, of the film. But, and we had just released Secret. Um, so, so, so in love had been our first top 30 hit and, and secret was was coming out and then 
Paramount decided that If You Leave was going to be the lead single. And so the record company, you know, wisely thought, well, okay, this is going to have Hollywood budget behind it to promote it. We need to get this on the radio. So they pulled Secret off the radio, which really upset Paul because it's his song. And everybody everybody knows it in America because it was on the radio. It was never actually released, so it wasn't a hit because it was never released to, to, be, to be bought. And If You Leave was, was brought out, and uh, boom, you know, massive. I can remember driving around L.A. and, you know, we jokingly go, oh, let's see If You Leave is on the radio. Yes, it is. Well, change that bloody station. I don't want to listen to that song. Oh, it's on that station as well. Change that station. Oh, it's on that station. So it'll be on three, three different stations simultaneously. Um, the downside is that, the, of course, it was so much bigger than anything else we did in America that to a lot of Americans, we're a one-hit wonder. Um, you know, it, it's, it's taken a while for our catalogue to catch up, really. Many thanks to Andy for sharing his story and to Lindsay Reed and Carol Wilson for adding their memories. OMD have recorded a new record called Bauhaus Staircase, which will hopefully be in your hands sometime in 2023. And a friendly reminder that you can also buy my book, Live Through That, on 90s Artists and get 15% off using the promo code PODCAST15 by ordering at the link on the podcast page. In addition, my earlier book, 80s Redux, is available wherever you buy your books. And if you like this show, please subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. We've got lots of great things coming up with season three, and I don't want you to miss anything. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.